Hey yo, Brent went to daughter, calls went to text, planes turned to drones, robotics in effect. Everybody using apps just to place a few bets. With media 2.0, what's coming next? Well, Olivia Humphrey, thanks very much for coming on New Media 2.0. Really appreciate you uh, taking the time to sit down and have a chat. Thanks for having me. Now, there's a lot of uh, ways we could could tackle this, a lot of ground to cover. You've obviously been a, a CEO and founder of Canopy, a highly successful business. You've now uh, spent a lot of time advising young founders and you've worked with, with and for big media companies in Disney and Village Roadshow. But I thought that Canopy journey might be a really good place to start. What was Canopy and what was the driving force for you to, to found that business? So Canopy was born in my mind when I was working for Village Roadshow and I was in the DVD distribution department back in the days when there was no streaming. And I noticed that the theatrical teams that were selling films to cinemas spent a lot of time marketing to students on campus, but our DVD distribution team didn't. And that gave me an idea that why are films not on campus when students respond so well to film? And so the true story is my now husband and I went traveling the world, backpacking the world for a year, and we decided to move to Perth. And I knew there were no media jobs in Perth. So it was a great opportunity in this beautiful state, WA, to start up my own business and address this DVD um, opportunity. And so I went to libraries, university libraries, and found on the shelves, it was just 60 millimeter films gathering dust and film just wasn't integrated into the tertiary curriculum. And I found out that at, say, UWA, the, the librarians were spending 50% of their, of their time sourcing DVDs and only 3% of their budget. So that was the idea of Canopy, this sort of Canopy over this 22-step process librarians were going through to order these educational and obscure DVDs. And it was basically a one-stop shop. And very quickly, I, I guess, we saw the sales at Canopy for DVDs just go through the roof. And it was very, very cash positive as well. So it turned out there was a big demand for film on campus. And that was around 20, 2008 that I launched Canopy. And then in 2013, streaming launched. And I thought, or, or YouTube, it was around, sorry, it was about 2010, I think YouTube launched. And I thought this is a much better idea. And so I launched a streaming solution. And that's when the business really, really took off. And so what was that mindset like as a, a young entrepreneur? Were you... Were you one of those founders who was more than ready and knew exactly what they needed to do to execute a, a profitable business? Or were you in the bracket of a, a young founder almost jumping in before they really knew what they were getting themselves into? Yeah, well, now knowing that, you know, Canopy is watched, these independent films are watched by literally millions and millions of people. I think it's at upwards of 10 million over the globe, maybe 20 now. Um, I'm often asked, what was the grand vision when you first launched? And my, my objective was to earn more than the salary I had at Roadshow, which wasn't particularly high at the time. So, no, I was not very – I didn't even call Canopy a startup. I was not very sophisticated. In fact, I wrote the business plan for Canopy by going down to my local library and borrowing a book called Starting a Business for Dummies. <laughs> and that is how I wrote my original business plan, which didn't have any streaming or taking on the world in it whatsoever. Because there's a lot of founders, I think, sort of retrofit the business plan once it's been successful and, and talk through that this was always going to happen. It was the plan from the start. But I think they sometimes forget how many pivots and changes to plans there, there's been along the way. Is that, that sounds like that was your experience. It was, and I moved the business to the US, to California in 2013. And having spent eight years basically in Silicon Valley, 
you'll see a lot of these huge, even the big uniform um, unicorn startups all often started with a very, very different business mm. and then navigated and evolved their way to their, their current unicorn status. And Canopy was a little like that, aside from the unicorn status, sadly. <laughs> it was successful, but not, not a unicorn. So what were the main differences when you've gone from being an, an executive village roadshow to actually founder and CEO of your own business? So it started out obviously as a home business where it was just me. And that had its own unique challenges, but I saw them mainly as um, very attractive that I could manage my own time. And the flexibility with having a home business was fantastic for stage of life. And then as it grew and I started hiring employees, I'd never had a formal report, so to speak. I'd shared reports at Village Roadshow. And so I really had to start to, to learn how to basically be an inspiring leader very early on because having um, hiring staff in a mining boom in Perth was, was actually quite difficult. And then as the business grew and we got our offices in Subiaco and then moved the business to the US and it grew to be around 80 people, there were different challenges. In the early days when things weren't going well or we had setbacks and we had to remortgage our house or for example, when I moved to the US and all my growth assumptions were pretty much wrong. <laughs> so we had a really tough time there. It was incredibly stressful and it was stressful in a way that disappeared as the business grew and the revenues grew. It was stressful because it was affecting my family. It was affecting my relationships with my son and my husband. It was affecting me psychologically. But then as the business grew and the revenues grew, I didn't have that fear associated with losing everything and having to move back to Perth in a, in a caravan. But different stresses and pressures came. And what I've learned over the 13 years of running Canopy is you can't have it all. And mm. you may overcome one big obstacle, whether it's a personal developmental, um, but then another one rises and rears its ugly head. So by the end, the stresses were very different. The press was a constant stress for me because it helped in so many ways in terms of raising awareness for the service. But in other ways, it was also a hindrance too and something you, you couldn't control, which is the beauty of press, but it, it got very difficult. Um, HR challenges, the more talented people I could employ and lure from Google, for example, were fantastic to build the business and so exciting to work with and took a lot of pressure off my plate. I didn't have to be product you know, CPO anymore. I could have an expert. At the same time, these are very sophisticated individuals who are really good at negotiating. That's why they are where they are. Um, constant conversations around stock options and competitors and what's happening. And that was just a different skill set that was required. And so, so many entrepreneurs want to start a business because of the, the freedom they see it potentially giving themselves. Yet when you, when you first start a business, that freedom is not really there. It's often there for people who exit a business or grow it to a scale where they can step back and take on a, a non-executive role in the business. But just how full on were the early days starting that business where you effectively you know, I assume almost had to do everything. For the benefit of hindsight now, I can say it was probably some of the most exciting times because, yes, I did have freedom, but at the same time I was also emptying the bins. I was even courier for a while before, you know, so I could pocket the postage for the DVDs. But at the same time I was choosing to do that and every single activity I did related to the business, it was leading to a bigger, a bigger goal. Whereas when I was an employee of different companies, you sometimes had to do things you really didn't want to do or didn't understand or actually sometimes even objected to. And having that freedom was something for me and I was so single-mindedly focused on growing the business and I anything that was taking me away from that 
I would work hard to eliminate. So for me, that freedom was just really um, invigorating. As it grew, the freedoms changed, of course. So for example, my final few years when Canopy was sold to a private equity firm, I had a lot of reporting and investor calls and things that maybe I didn't see were necessarily growing the business. It was became an obligation. So yeah, again, everything you give and take. And you mentioned the challenges you had with media once the, the group Canopy grew to a certain scale. What were some of those things that you found hard to deal with? So I can use one particular example, um, which is we had a $0 cost of acquisition, which is unheard of in the streaming world. You know, streamers often have upwards of $80 to attract a new user and retain a new user to the platforms. And for us, we had a $0 because we had the luxury of working with libraries. So public libraries and college libraries would effectively advertise the service to their members. And the press, the press loved the films we had. The films we had were independent. They were often um, they were curated around thoughtful entertainment, so they often were mission-focused or social impact. And so, of course, the press loved um, talking about these films and would refer their um, readers to the platform. So we, had, we really appreciated that because the marketing dollars were, were so low. On the other hand, sometimes the press got hold of stories which weren't actually true. And it was one of those really difficult moments where you have the choice to argue it and try and share the truth. But really, that's a lose-lose situation. And the example I was going to use was New York Public Library. They were having phenomenal usage. Uh, but getting to a point where the canopy usage was starting to exceed some of their other services what they might have journals books other services and the librarians felt that new york public library was obviously focused around books and made the decision to pause the streaming platform for a while and the new york times got hold of it and ran a story around the cost being too high now that actually wasn't true at all that cost is far lower than all the other resources and that just in a way was distressing because I knew that it wasn't true, but you couldn't, you could just see this thing rolling out on Twitter and social. And it was frustrating, but at the same time, as I said, I, as I learned, you always, what sometimes you lose, sometimes you win. We got a huge amount of new business based on this hmm. non-factual story from surrounding libraries, which equated and eventually over six months exceeded the New York um, public library business. And so, so you didn't good... correct that, that story in the end? Did you just let it roll? We tried to correct it and it was just, I mean, I think I learned, you know, no one really cares that much. I cared yeah. deeply, but no one really cared that much. And ultimately you can't, I don't want to fight with a library. I don't want to fight with the New York Times. You know, both the libraries are our customers and um, the New York Times have been so helpful to us in so many ways. And we're a tiny business. We thought we were huge by that stage, but we really were a tiny business. And I think there's just no, nothing to be gained be honest it's a funny one i mean on a very very different scale but the media down in melbourne just wrote a story that we've moved to byron bay because we've been chased out of there from twitter chased out of melbourne from twitter trolls and <laughs> we're away for a week so it's the same sort of thing I'm, I'm not looking to correct it but it is interesting when stories can get a life of their own and um and aren't necessarily based on fact i think that's in the new age where everyone's now a publisher i think at some level you we've all got to get probably comfortable that, that stories come and go. And I mean, as long as they're not causing any significant harm, um, I guess it's water off a duck's back. 
I think so. And I think the misinformation can be quite hurtful and harmful. And originally we were talking around what were some of the new challenges as the business grew. And I think having tweets or press or any public information that A, wasn't accurate or B, I didn't have, I didn't know these people who might be sharing information about the business or you know, filmmakers or whatever it might be related to the business that wasn't true. Originally, I felt it was wrong. I felt it was really, really wrong. And then I guess one of the things I learned through the amazing mentors I had around me, um, I'm curious if, if you had the same experience, was really just to focus on who really cares, mm. who I really care about. You know, my family, my friends, my uh, my mental system, the team at Canopy, all of the you know, the filmmakers, the librarians, all of this cohort, which I was so solely focused on, that I deeply respected. If anyone in that circle mm-hmm. came to me with some sort of critical feedback, I would really sit up and listen carefully and really work through and look at myself um, and question what I was doing. But when it was some, someone wider, who people I didn't know, who I really learned to just shrug my shoulders and it really did go away and just not think too much about it. But it it really took a lot of time and effort on my part to get that sort of strength to be able to do that. Which is almost, I guess, the lesson you teach your kids, isn't it? If it's someone that's important to you that's upset or saying nasty things to you, it's worth really exploring that. But if it's a a stranger you don't know who's just trying to hurt you, um, it's probably not as important as take as much notice of it. True. um, So talk me through the streaming business that we currently see in in 2020 it's been highly disruptive particularly to the cinemas who are the big winners from from the current streaming business models well obviously the biggest winner is netflix because netflix has completely changed the entire paradigm of movie watching and in some ways has been absolutely um fantastic in terms of bringing movies that people would have never seen into homes all around the world and arguably democratize democratize a lot of access to streaming. Also investing in diverse voices that may not have got funded before. So, so many amazing things um, that Netflix has done. I also think it's inspired a lot of really niche streaming platforms. For example, Crunchyroll, um, Shut Up, Canopy. Uh, who really focus on one thing that they do well. So Crunchyroll on anime, you know, Shatter on horror, Canopy on indie film. And I think they're also great winners by having creating a destination for viewers to come and they know exactly what they're going to see is um, really, really quite powerful and, as it's turned out, very profitable in attracting an audience. What I think is probably challenging about it is the way the film financing has been Um, remodeled and deconstructed and these streaming platforms are very Silicon Valley in their mindset which focused on time on site I think Reed Hastings Mm. CEO and founder of Netflix has been very open about his vision that his biggest competitors sleep and so (laughs) by by, um, aiming to have eyeballs on site as much as they can obviously TV series has been a renaissance in TV series where it's like clickbait you have to keep watching again and again new series at, at possibly the demise of film, the mm. 90, 120 minute, whatever it might be, film is not as attractive to a company like Netflix because firstly, the uh, the cost of generating awareness for that film is massive. It's a one-time view and they don't meet their objective of recurring mm. viewership week on week on week. 
And so I see that as a bit of a challenge for film, but I also see it as an opportunity because film doesn't really have a place on as much as it did on platforms like Netflix. Of course, cinemas and COVID have taken a hit, but we know that film, there's a huge appetite and a huge audience for film. So we'll have to find a, a, a home at some point. Does that desire to keep people's eyes on the screens for longer mean that it's a a bit of a boon for actors because there is so much content, so much more content needed to create series than there is for films? Or do the, do the costs change accordingly and what one actor used to get paid for a film, does it sort of even out to a series now? So I think there is sort of this barbell effect where um, very, very A-list, high-profile actors, of course, are paid huge dollars to appear in a, in a TV series because it's a really easy way to market the TV series by having a big name. It does mean, and I have heard that actors, some actors prefer movies. It's the true art. They prefer mm. movies. And there's not really the money uh, in the movies industry anymore. It's more in the TV series industry. A lot of actors, and I'm going to say producers and directors, also traditionally, traditionally do love the film festivals and they love the, um, the, the cinematic experience and they produce their films with that in mind. And with taking and removing that from the, the windowing that films have isn't necessarily seen as an, a, a positive thing by a lot in industry. I also think the way films are financed is being challenged. So in the past, a film, let's say it was a $10 million film, would have a lot of opportunities to recoup on that $10 million. So firstly, there's a, a theatrical window, which is a cinema window. Then there would be um, pay TV services, then you know, DVDs and then TVOD and then streaming. And there's just multiple, multiple, multiple um, avenues. Broadcasting goes on and on and on. Whereas now a film will get locked in exclusively generally with one streamer. So Netflix, say, for example, will take all rights for three years. So a film is released, this $10 million film, and they need Netflix to pay more than $10 million or they won't recoup for that one film. And if Netflix don't, they, it's unlikely to recoup. And what is happening in Australia, smaller market, films are being produced and some of the streamers will come and say, well, how much did it cost you to make this film? Say $10 million. Well, how much was free money, which was you know, money that the government supported it? Okay, maybe 4 million of that 10 million was government money. So the film actually is $6 million. And the streaming companies will take all rights and maybe a 15 to 20% premium on that $6 million, which is not exactly an attractive proposition for investors to invest in film, mm. producers to continue to, to finesse their art. And the other sort of part of the story is, I guess, attracting an audience has always been a really important metric of a film's success. And without having viewership numbers or any sort of metrics on how widely seen these films are, it makes it very difficult for filmmakers to understand if a film's successful or not, to work out you know, what films they're going to make next on their evolution as an artist, et cetera. So it is a definitely a challenging time. Is there a performance component to that sort of Netflix model whereby if it hits X number of views, there's bonuses paid or is it usually just a flat, a flat fee for... Not even usually always, as I understand it in the industry. There's a one upfront payment, regardless how many views the film attracts. And it's a bit of a land grab environment at the minute, really, isn't it? You've got Amazon in the space, you've got Netflix, you've got Disney, um, a host of other streaming providers as well that are really more focused on customer acquisition than they are actually being profitable at this stage of the journey. Do you think that's 
a sign that it's a nascent industry still, or do you think it's a sign of ultra low interest rates where it's very cheap to throw money at, at growth um, or a combination of the two? I see it depends who we're talking about. So if we're looking at companies that are pivoting into streaming, so for example, Disney's got Disney Plus and Hulu, um, they have no choice. You know, the broadcasters can't pay the fees that they were paying. The cinema revenue is not there. Netflix is taking films they may have sometimes taken. So they have no choice but to pivot into streaming and make it work. And a lot of the big American media companies are all pivoting into streaming. Netflix is a beast of its own because that's at the core and the heart of, you know, it's defining the industry. Um, but what, what is interesting is seeing what's happening in Australia because a lot of the streaming platforms here are American-owned and operated platforms coming into Australia. Of course, there's Stan as well. But when it comes, it all comes down to a content war and who can get the best content, they're going to attract the eyeballs, which is the all-important sort of pot of gold everyone's looking for, it's to acquire new customers but also to keep them paying month on month on month. And as the content, America's much, obviously, bigger, <laughs> bigger country with bigger budgets, producing exceptional content. If these are, you know, these media companies will obviously lock those incredible productions onto their own streaming platforms, which will make it much harder for any Australian born and bred streaming platforms to compete. So I see that as a really interesting moment in the way Australians consume media, watching a lot more American media by American-owned platforms. And one of the things I think that is really fascinating to me is the home screen. So when you launch whatever platform it might be, what is actually appearing on the home screen? And that is a very, very powerful piece of real estate that these streaming platforms have because it really defines what viewers are going to watch. Mm. And what you'll see is, of course, a lot of the platforms will have their own owned content, Netflix originals or Hulu originals, whatever it might be, HBO, no, basically advertised all over that home screen. The personalization kicks in and then you get into a bit of a, um, a viewing bubble. And so coming from a, a, a company like Canopy, where we were so reliant on our audience being adventurous and trying new films and pressing play on a film they've never heard of, it, it, it is a really interesting time as you sort of funnel all of our viewers into everybody's watching the same, mm. the same films because that's all they can see. So I think that's a really interesting thing that's going to become more important with time because if Netflix, for example, does start buying more and more or is required to, to produce more and more Australian content for our homegrown market, it still has to be on the home screen. It still has to be advertised and marketed for people to watch it because what's the point of having a film on these platforms if no one, A, knows it's there or B, watches it? <laughs> it's not served up to them. So It's a different sort of diversity issue, if you like, isn't it? It's not necessarily lack of diversity through through race or religion or things like that, but a lack of diversity in ideas and, and thought that is at risk of being created. That's right. And I think you know, the importance of ABC and SBS couldn't be understated. And it'll be really interesting to seeing if these Australian media companies can pivot into the, in this new streaming world and become this really desired destination for the Australian audience. And do you think the opportunity then is for an Australian business to create an Australian streaming service? Or do you think when an Amazon or a Disney come to Australia that they'll want to snap up local content because that'll, that'll speed up their customer acquisition in, in that each particular geography? Where do you think the play is for Australian? I think it content? all comes down to content. I think content is really king. So for an Australian company to launch a, a streaming solution, 
where are they going to get the content from? And I think that that is going to be really tough right now where mm. the content is majority coming out of US on US media platforms. But my hope, I hope so. <laughs> I also wonder at what time will Australians potentially fatigue of not seeing themselves mm. and our own sort of culture being represented on screen. I do wonder, you know, if ABC, as I keep saying, who are re their re part of their remit is to to um, produce films that are diverse and do reflect the culture that we have here and the diverse population that we have here. So, so I am hopeful. Um, on that point, I was what I've noticed in the the year I've been back. Granted, a lot of it was COVID, <laughs> so just is a couple of differences from US producers and Australian producers. And one is that Australian production industry is very heavily government funded. There's some fantastic funding with Screen Australia, Screen West, you know, Film Vic, all these funding bodies that really support the Australian um, screen industry as well as producer offsets, et cetera. And these things just don't exist in the US. In the US, filmmakers really have to be a startup. They have to pitch for investor funds. They have to pitch for all these sorts of funds in a way that Australians haven't seen. So I, 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 I do question, and I've got a lot to learn in this area, but I do wonder if the American industry is, is so much, I guess, more profitable, not just by virtue of its size, because producers and directors have to think very, very commercially about their film. They have to think about where the film's going, what channels it will exploit, what audience, how much revenue it's going to make because they, um, they have to, they've got investors who are asking these questions. And so I, I do wonder a little bit about that. I know a lot of Australian films perform well in Australia, but not as well internationally. And of course, there's some huge standouts that do. But I can't help thinking this sort of supply demand as the government sort of changing as well, how it's funding films and making it a lot harder for the independent industry, at least. Will the um, industry be forced to, to, to think more commercially and more globally and produce films that do have a more international appetite without undermining the, the integral strength of the Australian cultural stories we have here as well? I'm kind of thinking that will happen. And so that's sort of the mind shift of a director. I, I think of movie directors 30 or 40 years ago. I assume they were really focused on building almost a piece of art do you think in this new age media world that they've got to deal with, do you think they need to have a, a business hat lens on, if you like, so that the product can be commercial and, and not just focus on the, the type of movie or, or content they want to produce? I don't think they, ha they should. I think they have to because producing a film, yes, it is a piece of art, but it's just especially in this world, you can't produce a film without it making a return. And I think the Australian film industry is already recognising that and already seeing that and working towards that goal. I think we have to put our foot on the accelerator a bit harder because if we can produce content that is so strong that international markets are um, demanding it and there is a huge appetite for it, the whole game will change. And your question around the streaming platforms, you know, the power between the platforms versus the content, it'll all change. And you mentioned the ABC's role before. How are they going in supporting local content? Do you think they're doing a good job of supporting different views? I think they're doing a really great job from what I've seen of the ABC. I think the question is the audience. Are they attracting a big enough 
audience and is the audience reflective of the diverse nature of Australia, including all demographics? And I don't know the answer to that. I'd like to learn more. I do think it's a really tough job when we look at the youth. I, I, I don't know many youth who would go to iView. It's all about YouTube or other platforms. And so ABC used to be really strong with kids and youth programming. Maybe it still is. I, I just sort of think, again, it comes down to the audience. And do you think that's where the opportunity lies or do you think it'll be a private sector business that really takes Australian content to the next level? I would love to see the ABC rise to the challenge. I feel, you know, the ABC has been part of our lives for such uh, a long time. It's also fairly independent. I know there's a big argument about that. <laughs> but it does represent Australians. And I think if there is a really big focus on audience, the sort of program that coming out of the ABC might get more legs. And if there is a really strong program, that let's take the youth market. If there's a, a, a TV series, let's say, that is so powerful and speaks to that youth market, it will sell itself. You know, the, the youth will switch off YouTube for a moment in time at least and come to the ABC to watch what is trending on their social networks. And we've seen that at Canopy. Where if we have a film on Canopy that plugged into a particular demographic, particularly students on campus, very hard to attract their attention. If we had a film on race, gender relations, um, suicide, eating disorders, whatever it might be, something really, really big on campus, it was like wildfire, not just through one university or college, but it hopped around the nation and then the world without us doing anything because the best form of marketing for any film, and I'd probably go further and say pretty much anything, is referrals from people you respect and trust. And so you've gone from Canopy, a, a, a private business in the university space, so now working at, at Curtin Unity in an advisory role. Talk us through what role you, you're playing at, at Curtin University now. So there was one sort of bridge before that, which was launching from university um, and on campus, where anybody on campus could watch for free and the libraries paid, to public libraries. So anybody with a public library card could log on to Canopy and watch, or still can, and the libraries, it's a resource, so they cover the cost. Um, sold Canopy a couple of years ago to the private equity um, and moved back with CEO for around a year and a half before we found Kevin, who is fantastic. Worked with Kevin for the handover and I moved back to Australia in January this year, basically, which was, who would have known, the year of COVID. Mm. Um, and throughout my journey, the 13 years of Canopy Curtain had been a big supporter of Canopy. They'd been one of what I call a guinea pig in trialling the service early. They'd been very progressive. Throughout my journey as a founder, they've been very supportive. They have a lot of, they've sponsored the West Tech Fest. They have sponsored Entrepreneur of the Year Awards and all these things that really helped me grow as an entrepreneur and look bigger and feel bigger. And so it was a natural fit for me to work with Curtin. And when I arrived back, I said, I want to help other founders like you help me. And we agreed on this entrepreneur in residence role, which is very fluid and it's really around trying to help inspire, introduce whatever it takes these founders in the Curtin Network and beyond now to realise their goals. So there are projects like Curtin Ignition, which is an incubation stuff, open to anybody that come in. And I've been very active in that, not only the, the course itself, but also coffees afterwards and introductions and really trying to help founders become who they want to become and build their, build their businesses. It's also morphed into um, a, a wider responsibility, which is really exciting for me, which is any sort of curtain IP. And there's a lot of uh, incredible IP coming out of all the universities in Australia. 
and how to commercialize that IP, whether it's rocket ships or um, solutions for hearing, hearing impaired people, you know, just so much incredible science and tech and health. And what we find is a lot of these researchers are incredibly talented at finding a solution to the problems they're out to, to um, address. But having CEO skills and building that momentum from being a research project into a commercial business is a huge, huge, huge process. <laughs> and I'm finding, I'm really enjoying working with these researchers to give them confidence that it, they can be a CEO, they can build a business and, and give them some support. And I think a lot of it is about confidence. It was for me on my journey. A lot of it is about confidence in how to build leadership skills. And if there is a will, I think anybody can build these skills and become self-aware and find mentors that can help and support them and lead in ways, well, nearly anybody. And sometimes it's a case where a lot of these researchers are like, I don't, I don't want to do that. I'm a researcher. Mm. And so we talk about, well, what is that succession plan for a CEO or a business to start evolving around it? So it's really, really fun and fascinating. And so is that step one when you're talking to a founder or a potential founder is having them really understand what their skill set is and what they're good at? I'm finding a lot of founders are very sophisticated and I th now. I mean, for me, that was. <laughs> I'm still learning. But I'm finding there is such a big support network around founders, and I'm talking now really through my WA lens. There's a really big startup ecosystem here where these sorts of conversations are quite fluent. There's a lot of incubators, a lot of networking, a lot of coffees. <laughs> and so I'm, I have been surprised at how self-aware a lot of founders are in the, in the tech world. On, on campus, it's a little bit different. So, yeah, I do think it is a bigger part of just giving, I think there's sort of a fear associated for researchers about the big evil commercial world mm. and breaking down those barriers and showing that, you know, the commercial world is actually the path for these founders to realise their dream of, of making whatever their solution is um, into in, become part of the wider community is, is something that's really attractive to them once you break down that, that fear. And so what are the most common challenges you find when you are sitting down with, with, with young founders that have, that have started businesses? So I, most of, I'm going to talk about in the tech world because this is where I do a lot of my work. Um, and so we look at sort of tech entrepreneurs. One of the biggest um, things I have noticed is this single-minded focus on funding. And I see it as a bit of a help and a hindrance. Of course, a lot of uh, these startups do need funding to, to build a business. But there seems to be a lot of pressure. The, the vocabulary has to be exact. There, a lot of these young founders I'm finding spending upwards of 40% of their time talking to investors, pitching, managing investors. And when you ask them, do you enjoy that? The answer is invariably no. No, they don't enjoy that. Well, what do you want to do? I just want to build my business. So 40%, nearly half of their time is just too much in my mind. And I'm, I look back on my own journey and I'm so grateful that it did start up the way it did as I bumbled along and just used the cash that I had to build mm. the business and grow it. And it was bootstrapped for the first eight years of its life. And I'm so grateful for that. Not every business can do that. So that I think is one challenge, this, this focus on the seed rounds, the angel investing, then the Series A. And once the Series A is secured, part of the business plan is Series B. And that I find sad. I think, mm. you know, a business plan should be about growing the business. So that's one thing. The second thing is... Something when I first came back from Silicon Valley, and I probably should have known this, but I was so focused on building Canopy, I didn't really hear this concept of MVP. 
And I hear a lot of these founders saying, I've just got to finish building my MVP and get it to market. And I said, well, you've just got to start sending out invoices. Let's just get mm. money in the door. Then you can stop focusing on the financing of the business and just really focus on, on growing it. And this MVP, as I, I decided to look it up, what is this an acronym for? Because in my head, it meant those most valuable product. Because I saw these founders really working hard to perfect their product. I'm like, you've got users who are willing to pay for it. Just get it out there and fix it as you go. Yeah. And I was surprised when I found that MVP actually stands for minimal viable product. And I do question sometimes this pressure on the founders, you know, with the financing and the investors and this slick vocabulary and having this perfect product, which is a reflection of themselves in some cases. I, 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 I'm trying to coach founders and saying minimal viable product really means the product that someone's going to use and pay for. Mm. And I talk a lot about my own experience where for my guinea pig customers, I did give them my MVP and it had a lot of bugs. It's very early days of streaming huge bugs and I managed expectations and I said I'm going to charge you 25% of what I'm going to charge you once I screen these bugs and this is and so I got it out and started getting invoices and as I started fixing the bugs and it mm. stopped um, buffering <laughs> I increased my prices and I do think I had no choice I was bootstrapped so I had to my MVP expectations were much lower than um, mm. I'm sure a lot of these founders so that's my other observation, the, the focus on financing and this MVP being a little bit too much focus perhaps. So you mentioned the financing side of it, uh, spending so much time uh, raising capital for a business is one thing, but it often stems from a, a lack of drive to become profitable early on in the business's journey. Do you think too many founders have watched, you know, what Facebook have done or some of the huge uh, unicorns in Silicon Valley that have huge addressable markets where becoming profitable isn't as necessarily early on because once they are profitable, they're going to be mega companies. Do you think sometimes that mindset seeps into much smaller tech companies that should really be trying to get profitable much earlier on in their journey? I think it does. But now I'm drawing from my own experience too. I think fear is a really, if, if you, if not, you know, used um, in a manageable way, is a huge motivator. And so if you are fearful of how you're going to make your next payroll, if you are fearful about your mortgage, I know from my own experience, you become incredibly single-minded in that focus of profitability because you don't have a choice. And all this fluff on the side, like building an extra feature or getting a sign, a much nicer sign outside the office, you just ignore that because you have to get that those invoices out the door. And I sometimes wonder in talking to some founders, I don't see this fear. They've just raised mm. whatever it is, 800,000, 1.2 million. And they're like, ah, we can all relax because our run rate, we've got two mm. years. And I and that's what I wonder if is missing a little bit in, in, in this new sort of financing model with venture capital. I'm saying that. A lot of, if it is venture capital funding or very sophisticated angel funding, there's a lot of pressure from investors to meet the targets they're setting. So it's not always the case, but I, I do see, I, I do wonder sometimes if there was a less of a focus on the funding and having the money in the bank, or would there be more of a, a, a drive to just start invoicing? Every every presentation or deck I've ever seen of a, of a small startup tech company in particular, but just about any company has the, the forecast revenue and they've got the hockey stick there where, it, you know, in two years' time, it's always about to explode and go through the roof. Uh, and the valuations are invariably pegged on the assumption that that hockey stick pans out. Do you think there's a place for, for when you are 
for investors when they are investing in these startup businesses that the valuation is in fact floating pending on milestones that, that come or don't come down the line? I think it does, and it depends on what stage of the business the company is getting valued at. But I do know with those decks with this massive hockey stick curve, I think for every private equity or venture capitalist that I've been involved with, they kind of ignore that slide and do their own calculations. Yeah. <laughs> um, but for my own journey, and I can talk fluently about that, we we're always cash positive because it was bootstrapped for so long. So the valuation was basically based on revenue and a multiple of revenue and also an indication of the EBITDA. So that was a very sort of comfortable valuation through over the, we had two major fundraisers and, and that was the way that we were valued. But I don't know a lot about early stage valuations. I'm looking forward to learning that next year. So I've just taken on an advisor role with ACT Capital, ACT Capital, um, based out of Victoria, and they specialise in media entertainment um, businesses and startups and um, attracting some really fantastic and talented um, founders who have these amazing ideas to really disrupt that industry. So I'm sure I'll be more fluent in that after a year or so. And our capital partners, obviously, uh, partners of New Media 2.0. So we've got nothing but kind words about them. In that role, what are sort of the, some of the opportunities you'll be looking at that you think are most exciting in the in the media space currently? I love talking to founders in the media in the media space because uh, nearly every founder that I've come across is looking to disrupt and solve problems that are existing. And I've always found, particularly the film industry, has been too entrenched in traditional ideas that need to change for the modern age. And I do think this disruption that Netflix has really caused is a good thing. Things needed to change. So when I see founders come in and really challenge assumptions and ideas that, you know, I may have or the industry may have, I just celebrate that. I think seeing the drive really takes me back to my early years of having that drive and passion. And that's something that I find really exciting to work with. But also the, the partners at Act Capital are just from a media background. And I think for me, that's been one of the key decisions to work alongside them is they're not necessarily the traditional finance people that are on, in venture capitals who are also very talented in different ways. But having this passion and deep, deep knowledge and network in the media industry has made the conversations around these businesses we see really, really invigorating. And you mentioned that fear you had when you were working in a, in Canopy and founding Canopy, that's now gone in your life. Do you miss that looking back, that fear, or is it something that drove you at the time and was useful but you enjoy not having that gnawing feeling in the back of your mind when you when you get up in the morning? I enjoy it. And by the end, <laughs> no hesitation there, mm. by the end as well of, of my experience, I didn't have enough time in my life to really address it. And I felt the fear which was affecting me as a leader. It was affecting my enjoyment of the job. And I now, after the benefit of having a year to really sort of come back to earth and really have the, the benefit of, um, I guess, hindsight and reflection, is I wish I'd had a little bit more time in my life to focus on myself as a businesswoman, myself as a wife, as a mother, but also me just as me, as an, as an individual. And that's one of the challenges of having a big company. There is no time. And your time is constantly compromised. So I really, really cherish and I don't think, and I'm so grateful I have this, I'm in this position now after selling Canopy 
that I have, I don't have that gnawing fear anymore. And I think it's one of my driving principles when I'm looking at investing in both filmmakers and films, but also in the tech companies and the media companies and startups is helping founders with that fear so it doesn't overcome and become a negative influence rather than a positive one, because it's hard to live with. And so you see investors with a, a mindset, often younger investors that don't have a balance sheet behind them, uh, are often really aggressive and they have a mindset of trying to, to build their fortune and they're, they're willing to take on much more risk. And then you'll see investors at the other end of the spectrum that have a balance sheet to protect and their mindset's completely different. You probably see it in, in professional sports with coaches. There's a different decision-making and risk profile for people that are trying to build their fortune versus those that are trying to protect it. Do you think as a founder that's already exited one business, do you think that mindset for you has almost shifted and it would be hard for you to go back and found another business because you've moved on to a, a different risk profile and maybe a different mindset? So my motivation for Canopy and the way that I could attract staff in effectively Silicon Valley when we were competing against Twitter and you know all of the social, Google, Facebook, Snapchat even, to be able to attract these really talented individuals to come and work for a small company Canopy that most people hadn't heard of was really down to the mission because at Canopy we genuinely believed that when people press, press play on a Canopy film, the world was a better place because the films were so um, thoughtful and challenging assumptions showed diverse opinions and grassroots stories you'd never hear. On the other side of it, we gave 50% of revenues back to the film industry. So whoever owned the film got 50%, a flat 50%. They also got transparency into viewing statistics and comments and how the film was um, you know, trending on, on the social platform. So a huge amount of analytics, incredibly transparent. And because of these sort of founding principles, every decision we made came back to, is this the right thing to do? Is it part of our brand? Is it why we're all here around the table? Now, obviously, as the company grows, the things change. And this is no um, surprise or nothing new that, of course, when private equity get involved, there are other um, objectives which may be seen as more important than those as well. So your question sort of coming back. Sorry? And margins and, yeah. And also very interesting in a different way and helpful for me. Um, but, yeah, your question was around would I... I guess, be excited, you know, to found another company. And I think what I'd like to do is have a, a bigger, I guess, impact and help other incredible founders who have that passion and drive to excel at what they're doing faster and more effectively and more globally than they might otherwise already be on track to do. I also love the diversity of, of what I do and meeting these incredible people and having an influence on companies or on companies, sorry, startups or companies that I may not otherwise have. So I, I don't see myself as starting up anything, but I see myself as supporting others. And do you think, you know, you'll often have a founder start a business, then they might get get some funding and, and deal with shareholders. And then if they're really successful, they may be dealing with institutional type investors like private equity, or they may become a listed company. Do you think it's unrealistic for a founder to be able to pivot and evolve to fulfill all those three different roles of being a CEO of those different types of businesses? Or have you seen people that, that are able to, to excel at, at those different skill sets along the way? I think they can, but I would say it probably is dependent on their support network. So, for example, when I had some really great, strong investors that I consider mentors and now friends 
who were able to say to me, that wasn't cool, Liv. You know, what, what that board meeting, when you said that, how do you think, you know, these really confronting things that I just, you know, almost took my breath away was such a gift. And so I would respond saying, well, how did that happen and how can I overcome that? And having that sort of guidance and mentorship was priceless for me. And then without having that in those moments when I didn't have that, I, I floundered. And I see that with a lot of my um, friends who have got startups in Silicon Valley. Sorry, the dishwashers in the background. Friends who've got um, – and, and they try – and a lot of these companies – that are attracting funds, a very, very you know, competitive process. And so the founders often have an opportunity to choose who is invested based on the people. And so I feel if you've got good people around you, you can pretty much, and you're willing and self-aware enough, you can morph, I'd like to think, <laughs> morph into um, any sort of executive role. For me, I was also helped by an incredible executive team. And as the company was more successful, I could attract and um, hire, I guess, have packages that were attractive to people at really incredible companies that came to work at Canopy. And they also made me look better, made the company better and, and supported me too. That's great. You've been, uh, you've been incredibly generous with your time. Just to finish up, what would be one bit of advice you'd give to your 18-year-old self or, or yourself just before starting on the Canopy journey? would be don't be afraid of help I've always been fiercely independent and I think part of that I can celebrate part of that because I don't think Canopy would be where it is if I hadn't been single-mindedly focused on what I wanted to do we've been told by people along the way it's going to be too small and there's no money in that and no one watches independent film you know so just being so independent and focused has really helped but it's also been a hindrance because I didn't ask for help in those early years. I think my 13-year journey could, could have been shrunk to five had I been open enough when I was younger to, to attract a mentorship network and not feel challenged by it or not feel like it was a comp in competition with me or a threat. So that would be my biggest thing. And that's what I talk to a lot of founders, female or male, particularly females with their networks, is really build up people you trust around you because they can really help you. And all my amazing mentors have been male, but I, I talk to a lot of female founders particularly. And I wanted to make this point because I feel like the female founders I've seen are less inclined to outreach to a network. And it's sort of a lot of comes down to confidence it comes down to accessibility and it's something I'd really like to change is um, if I have an opportunity to. It's brilliant advice. Well, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of very lucky founders at Curtin University, I reckon. So uh, thanks very much for taking the time. I've, I've loved our conversation and uh, good luck with Curtin University role and, and good luck with our capital partners as well. Thank you so much. It's been great. Thanks, Olivia. If you're enjoying New Media 2.0, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest.